Karatavuk and Mehmetchik were very small boys at the time, but they would never forget the day that the dog arrived. They had been sent out by their respective mothers to gather wild greens, of which there were a hundred varieties growing on the hillsides and around the edges of the pastures. They were wasting time in conspiratorial fashion in order to delay their return home, where they would probably be given yet another task. They were sitting beside the sunken track that led past the almost intact ruins of a Roman theatre, idly tossing stones across the track, their target a small burrow made in the opposite bank by a mouse. "'Why don't we pee in the hole?' suggested Mehmetchik. "'Then the mouse might come out and we can catch it.' Karatavuk frowned. "'I don't want to catch a mouse.' Anyway, said Mehmetchik, if we pee in the mouse hole, we might drown it. Karatavuk nodded wisely in agreement, and the two boys continued to toss their stones. Karatavuk was the second son of Iskander the Potter, and he had the handsome face of a young man, even though he was only six years old, with golden skin and shining black hair that fell across his eyes, so that frequently he had to sweep it upward with the back of his hand. Mehmetchik, who came from one of the Christian families, was shorter and stockier, and it was clear that one day he would grow up into the kind of man who can perform surprising feats of strength. Like Karatavuk, his skin was tawny, his eyes dark brown, and his hair black and straight. They might easily have been brothers or cousins in two versions. In fact, if one traced it back far enough, there was no one in that town who was not in some way a relation of everybody else. The boys became aware that someone had come over the brow of the hill and was bearing down upon them. Even before they saw him closely, they realized that he was unusual. There was something uneven and exaggerated in his stride, and he did not walk in a straight line, but veered slightly from one side to the other, so that his outturned footprints in the dust left behind them the winding track of a river or a snake. The boys sat up and watched him approach with a mixture of fascination and fear. It was as if he did not see them. He was tall and very thin, with spindly legs that were nonetheless tautly muscled from his years of walking and he was clad only in a ragged scrap of grey sheet with a hole torn out for his head, and which at front and back hardly attained the level of his knees. He had a length of ship's rope about his waist, the weight of whose knot at the front barely preserved his decency. His arms were as thin and sinewy as his legs. In his right hand he grasped a quarterstaff of well-worn ash, and with this he helped to propel himself along at his unnatural speed. The tattered man was oblivious. His full head of disordered grey hair was knotted and matted, caked with dust, and the sweat of his brow ran down from it. With every step he groaned inarticulately, as if in conquerable pain, a groan such as one hears from a madman or from a deaf man who has never learned to speak. These vocalizations, it seemed, were his marching song. He swept past the two boys, and they, as of one mind, jumped to their feet and followed him, mimicking his erratic stride and giggling to each other. They approached the lower end of the town, and soon the procession grew as more children tagged along behind in order to experience the novelty of imitating the extraordinary man. Fat little pug-nosed Drosula, the exquisite Philothée, Ibrahim, son of Ali the broken-nosed, who even at that age was already following Philothée everywhere, and Gerasimos, son of the fisherman Menas, who was already feeling a fascination for Drosula, all joined the happy ragtaggle of mockers and mimics. Through the narrow walkways of the town he went, pausing for nothing. People noticed that there was something untamed and prophetic in his demeanour, and assumed that he must be a dervish belonging to one of the many brotherhoods of Sufis. The dog perplexed everybody on his passage through the streets by omitting to beg for anything. Onward he strode, his eyes fixed on another world. 
He passed the last houses, turning leftward and upward, surmounting the crest of the slope. The dog approached two large tombs that had been carved into the vertical face of a small cliff nearby. He found these two spacious tombs to be both airy and well-aspected, giving a fine view over the valley, and accordingly he laid down his quarterstaff, unslung his water-flagon, and sat on the step between the porticoes of the temple tomb. At the apex on the pediment above was carved in bas-relief a pair of open hands, the Lichian symbol for unnatural, violent, and untimely death. The dog looked at the children for the first time and smiled. So horrifying was that smile that the children screamed and ran, tumbling over the rocks, cutting themselves on thorns. They would remember that appalling sight as long as they lived, and it would haunt their nightmares for ever. That evening the priest, Father Christophoros, and the Imam, Abdul Hamid Hodja, encountered...